Medicine especially needs to explore this coherence truth. The theory of coherence can be so broad that it embraces all aspects and appearances in the world, but they can all be attributed to and gather in just one heart, one mind. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. How does acupuncture work? You probably get asked this question a lot. I know I do. For years, I made the mistake of attempting to answer it in a way that gave patients a Chinese medicine 101 answer. It was a mistake. It was a mistake because while it was the question they were asking, it wasn't the question that they wanted to ask. The question they wanted to ask but did not know how to verbalize was, will this work for me? Or it might have been the question that they were a little embarrassed to ask, which is, are you trustworthy? And perhaps the question behind the question was, what will I tell my friends and family about where I was this afternoon? I could be wrong about this. I'm wrong about a lot of things, but check it out for yourself. Look for this in your own clinical work when people ask, how does this work? Or why did you choose that point? Especially if the point was nowhere near the area that had, air quotes here, the problem. I don't think people really care about how acupuncture works. They just want to know that you know what you're doing. They want a feeling that the time and money spent with you has been worthwhile. Mostly, I think patients want some reassurance that they're not crazy for being the first in their family or group of friends to step away from the perceived safety of conventional medicine. And so we get that question, how does this work? Sometimes you can ignore that question and see if you can engage the question behind the question. And perhaps it's because I live in the Midwest. I'm reluctant to talk about qi, yin, and yang instead I'll look for ways to translate our Chinese medicine thinking into something that connects to the Western mind. I look for a way to connect with the story that my patients are already telling themselves about health and healing. I'm not asking them to join my world. I'm looking to join theirs. Try getting at that question behind the question. It's also a good way to better understand how your patient views illness and health and what resources they have or may not have. They don't really care how it works. They just want to know that this stuff is going to help them and that you're worthy of their trust. All right, settle in here, friends. We're about to get into an interview with someone who's been here on the podcast before, Zev Rosenberg. We're talking about his new book and his one of his great loves about Chinese medicine, which is Dipping Deep into the Nanjing. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool. 
a sharpened wire, and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Seth Rosenberg, welcome back to Geological. Thank you, sir. Always happy to sit down and have a conversation with you. I want to get a little bit into this. Well, I was going to say the new book, but you kind of have two new books these days. So I should probably be more specific about which one. The new book and the new new book. The new book and the new new book. I, I'm, ta- I'm thinking about the new new book, the one on Nanjing and pulses. Yeah. Yeah. Which is out October 21st. Okay. So we're actually speaking at the end of August, but by the time this thing gets published, it's probably going to be past October anyway. So y'all can go find it wherever you uh, enjoy buying your books. You know, I love the old books that we have in Chinese medicine, but honestly, so often I have a hard time making heads and tails on them. 
I've broken my head trying to do that, but I'm just a glutton for punishment, I guess. Yeah. So how do you approach a study like this that lets you bang your head against something that, you know, especially on first glance, it's very difficult, not just for Westerners, but even for Chinese people to make sense of? That's a really good question, Michael. And um, I don't recommend my method to anybody else. <laughs> you know, I'm what they call an autodidact. My best study is when I direct my own study. And I began in a time when there were very few tools available. You know, you just grabbed what you could and ran with it. And Paul Lunchell put out his translation of the Nanjing. It was one of the first translations of a, of a Han Dynasty medical classic in about 1987. And before that, I had some exposure through, you know, uh, a practitioner who's a dear friend of mine in Colorado named Don Hayes, who studied Chinese medicine in Okinawa, and his teacher relied on the Nanjing. And Michael Brofman, whose studies were in Taiwan in the 70s, and his teacher also based everything that he did on the Nanjing. And they were very enthusiastic about it, and their whole diagnostic strategy and treatment, including herbs, came from the Nanjing. Then in the early 80s, when Paradigm Press came out, they started publishing books by the likes of Kiko Matsumoto and Stephen Birch. And one of their first books was on Japanese five-phase treatment systems. And almost every quote in the book came out of the Nanjing. Well, if it's five-phase treatment, it's probably Nanjing, yeah. right? Exactly. And, and my further historical explorations, because I was always exploring and still am exploring, 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 led me to see that that was really the foundations of Japanese practice, which I found much more subtle and sophisticated in some ways than the TCM acupuncture I was taught in the colleges in the late 70s, early 80s. So I was very taken with it. So I just bought Paul Unschuld's translation, which was very ambitious because it was still the way Giles era, even before there was pinyin. There were no dictionaries. There were classical Chinese characters and there were, there were no online tools, anything to use at that point. So I just tried to figure out the English and over and over again. I read it at least 25 times and then... By the time the new millennium began, 2000, we started getting better dictionaries, online tools. By then, I also had some more Chinese uh, expertise. I mean, um, compared to you or you know Dan Bensky or Leo Loke or people like that, my Chinese is still very primitive. It's just enough to be able to use dictionaries and try to figure out lines, but I don't consider myself a translator by any stretch of the imagination. But. I mean, you have to be careful with that term translator because translating modern Chinese is one thing. Translating classical Chinese, completely different kettle of fish. Well, just to show you what a freak I am, I immediately found classical Chinese much easier for my brain than modern Chinese. I remember Paul Unchel came out with a learn to, to read medical Chinese series. And it was based on a modern text by Qin Bo Wei with modern characters. And it was like long run-on sentences and combinations of characters to, to kind of come up with modern scientific terms. And my brain just 
turned into like sandpaper trying to follow it. But when I picked up a more classical translation, also books of of entomology of characters, et cetera, et cetera, and grammar, classical Chinese grammar, I find it much easier. It's just me though. I, I don't know if anyone else could do that. So I just immediately moved towards trying to learn classical characters and look at more classical texts. I, I had a tutor for several years, Chinese tutor named Dr. Wang from Orange County, and we tried deciphering a book, for example, by Zhang Xichun, early 20th century book uh, that was basically esteeming Chinese medicine while being open to Western medicine, one of those types of... Oh, yeah, kind of a Zhongxi Jiaka thing. You remember the title, bless well, you. Well, I... <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that was the title, but um, I mean, that whole idea of combining the two is going to make them both better. Zhongxi yeah. Jiaha, right, okay. the combination of Chinese Western medicine. But it was difficult even for him. It was just really hard to translate this because there's so many turns of phrase and so forth. And I realized that different eras in China, you have the same issue. You know, someone like Lorraine Wilcox will certainly tell you that. And Again, I don't claim to be an expert of that in any sense of the word, but I ha I do feel I have enough skill and intuition and then trying in the laboratory of my own mind and body and with my patients to take the core principles. That seems to be my particular strength. I understand uh, Li Lun. I understand principle. I understand how to apply them. It's like the physics of it. Like, you know, you have like the Liu Jing of Shang Han Lun, the six channel differentiation that was originally in Su N31. And then you have the Wu Xing. These are operating principles and they can be distilled down to an essence. And I think I studied the Nanjing long enough, read it long enough, and went over the pulse chapters or what I call the vessel diagnosis chapters to a point where I was able to get to a deeper core of understanding it. And I think that was further helped by Talmudic study, which I've done for many, many years, which is a similar type of dialogue, debate, commentary type of scenario. When I was first in acupuncture school, we read Paul Unschold's Nanjing. It was, it was part of our required reading. Where was this, may I ask? This was at Siam, back when it was still Siam. It was the best school back then and may still be now. You know, people often ask me, you know, was it a good school? And I, the answer is always, how would I know? It's the only school I went to. I, I have nothing to compare it with. But so. they required learning medical Chinese and translating articles. Yes, they did. And they still do. And they're much better at it now than, than when I first started and out. And then they're but, also very hands-on. Super hands-on. And it's small classes and very personable. I'm not saying there aren't other great schools. Don't get me wrong. It's just that model really appeals to me. Let's put well, it that way. It, it appealed to me as well. I'm, I'm kind of a hands-on guy. And luckily, I was living in Seattle at the time. So it was- That's where I met you. Super easy. No brainer, right? But back to Paul Unschuld in the Nanjing. When I read it in school, the thing that I loved about it was the commentaries. Because- I mean, you'd have a small paragraph or two from the Nanjing, and then he'd have his explanation and a little bit about it. And then you get like pages of commentaries. People in the commentaries over the dynasties are arguing with each other. I mean, I, I mean, like calling people out and saying, if you treat your patients this way, you'll kill them. It'll be your fault. You know, blah, blah. I, you know, or they'd agree with somebody, you know, give them a little emoji or something. No, wait, we do that now, they didn't do it then. But still, that whole thing of this dialogue, this conversation, argument, really, 
across the dynasties and across the centuries. And I thought the same thing. I thought, these guys are like Jews, <laughs> right? This is like Talmudic study. This is what Jews do. They argue back and forth, not just in real time, but across the centuries. Well, one of the things Michael Brofman said many, many years ago is that every era, every generation of Chinese physicians made their own commentaries and made the text relevant to the medicine they were practicing, the people they were practicing on. And I think we need to write our own commentaries. And I don't claim any uh, great erudition and ability, but I think this little book is kind of like a modern commentary without being biomedicalized on the phenomena of the Nanjing and the difficulties of vessel diagnosis and what that means and and also the phenomena of time, of having a moving target. In Chinese medicine, things aren't fixed. They're states of change and transformation. So this is one of the great, shall we say, a Jing is almost like a warp, a weft of threads coming together. And it's like you're looking at a network of different influences and you're kind of riding with that and finding the place in that where your patient fits. Right, it's through time and space. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, it really is a study in time and space, what we're doing, which is why the medicine is so hard sometimes, because you can't just put your finger on it and go, oh, it's this. Well, it's this in, in a particular moment. The question is, where's it going next? Exactly. If you can get a handle on that, you can really help people. But if you can't get a handle on that, I think it's probably hard to help people, and it's, and it's confusing medicine to practice. Yeah, you have to change your mindset. I always say, and there's people like uh, Felix de Haas in Europe, who's also teaches with Dan Bensky, where he puts it is, is that when you learn principle and you train your mind to see the world in a certain way, that's the biggest influence on your medicine. Even if you're a good technician, you will be limited by how you view the patient if you see things as fixed. What you just said really strikes a chord for me because I've been, I've been studying this on acupuncture lately, which has a very particular way of looking at the five phases, especially looking at not just the yin aspect of the five phases, but the yang aspect, which is something that often gets left out in, uh, in modern TCM. Just that thing of being able to consider the yang side of, of the five phases has completely changed how I look at things. I mean, I view reality differently. I feel like I walk down the street looking at things differently now. Yeah, I read those articles that uh, you suggested on um, acupuncture, and hopefully the uh, seminar went well as well. It, yeah, it did. Thank you. So um, I've always been interested in the Korean take on medicine, which is like the Japanese, yet another lens, another prism to view Asian medicine with its roots in China. But I liked what the Japanese did with it. And then as an extension, what the Koreans did with it, you know, with the whole uh, chosen dynasty and Neo-Confucian logic that was in there and some of the great physicians and how they made a slant on it that was just sublime, beautiful, beautiful. So I've been reading a few books on that subject recently as an extension of my Shang Hanlun and Nanjing studies. Oh boy, well, I, it, it, as you get more into that, I'd like to 
have more conversation. I've not really studied it in a scholarly way. Um, I've just been taking some of these basic principles and, and like trying them on, like putting on a pair of glasses and going, I'm going to look through these glasses. And I'm going to leave these glasses on until I can actually see clearly through them. So do the Psalm people use the Nanjing as a uh, source text in what they, they do? They do. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely. Because the entire treatment method is that five-phase transfer. You're basically choosing whatever channel you think is excess, and you're going to the channel that would be, via its counterbalance, considered deficient, and tonifying that deficiency. It's, it's very fascinating because... Shang Han Lun is to a great deal about Xie Qi coming from the outside and harmonizing the internal and the external and the Wei Qi with the Ying Qi. But in the Nanjing and in the system as you're describing, Xie Qi is a result of visceral systems being out of synchronicity with each other. And one is too strong, one is too weak. And of course, this is discussed in the Suwen as well in the early chapters. Which they also use quite a bit in, in Sa'an. They pull on that as well. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. So again, the Nanjing for me is like, like a lot of things Japanese. The Japanese are the great distillers. They took Chinese thought. They took Chinese cuisine. They took Chinese herbs. And they distilled it down to these really what I call essence systems. And the Nanjing is like a distillation of certain aspects of the sprawling Suwen. The Suwen is like a huge landscape with all kinds of places and corners and nooks and crannies and mountain ranges and valleys and streams. And the Nanjing made it into like a simple, you know, Zen painting, so to speak, like a calligraphy. It's like very calligraphic. Even the way the characters are laid out, you know? Yeah. I love that about it. It's like simple. It's like haiku, really. That's as close as I could get to. But the thing is, as you pointed out, you also need the commentaries to get into the haiku to help decipher and get a broader view. But then you distill it back again. So, It, it really is this iterative process of like going wide, making it narrow, going wide, making it narrow, you know, taking some broad concepts, seeing how that actually manifests in a particular situation usually a clinical situation, right? Because that's that's where we're working. And then that further informs your broader view, depending on the results you get. Yes. And it also is a, it's, it really is a form of meditation, studying a Jing, studying a classic, in that when my mind and being are in the right place, my treatments are much more effective, which of course means yang sheng, nurturing, nourishing life. You have to practice a way of life for me, it's pranayama, yogic exercises, a little qigong in the morning, you know, whatever encourages mindfulness, good rest, good sleep, you know, diet, hiking, all those good things to keep me in the best possible condition and physical and mindful shape to be with patients. Because you have to be present, you have to be there with them. And again, with these maps that we have, it's amazing how they help us translate that state of being into treatment. I, it sounds almost mystical, but it's not, you know. State of being into treatment. I'd like to hear a little more about that. I was reading something from Zhang Jingyue the other day. Um, let's see. Ah, here it is right on my desk. This is a translation by Richard Birchinger. I haven't had a chance to check the translation myself. 
But listen to this. Is it okay if I read it out? Yeah, I'd love to hear it. It's a, he translated, any occurrence cannot lie outside Li, which he translates as truth, which could also be principled, right? Right. Or coherence is the way I like to think of it. I like coherence. I like it better than truth, personally. Yeah. But he's calling it truth. Okay, fine. Yeah. Medicine especially needs to explore this coherence truth. The theory of coherence can be so broad that it embraces all aspects and appearances in the world, but they can all be attributed to and gather in just yi, yi shin, one heart, one mind, as he has here. So that's beautiful. That's just what we were just talking about. So we embraces all aspects and appearances in the world, but gather them into one consciousness, one mind, yi shin. So the doctor has yi shin, but the patients, bing, the diseases, all have different aspects and shang, appearances, manifestations. It is certainly difficult to treat so many kinds of various diseases, but each disease has its own root and individuality. So the doctor's mind, metaphorically speaking, is just like the northern star, where other stars are like the different diseases. If the North Star confronts all the other stars, it's unequal to the task. But if it is used to face one star, there will be a straight line between them. One will illuminate the other. So the North Star cannot be mistaken. Therefore, in medical practice, one has to put the single mind into exploring and understanding the root of the disease. Using one's single mind to tackle the single truth, coherence of the illness, all difficult, knotty problems can be solved. This one, yi, is unique and just li, coherence or truth. Once one mind coherence is cleared up, yin things are seen as yin and yang things are seen as yang, as you were just discussing with what you just learned. Both sides should not be mixed up. So yin and yang are identified. The opposing aspects of exterior, interior, vacuity, repletion, cold and heat appear as the other six antitheses. When you understand them, you can differentiate between yin and yang and no disease will be outside of your scope. To hold to centrally to a philosophy of mind with the heart at center, nothing can be better than this. So it's kind of like the heart is like the pivot or the mind is the pivot that is transcends yin and yang, but then can differentiate yin and yang. Right. Well, and because it's like the North Star, it's a place to orient from. It's a reliable, steady place to orient from. And then you can see what's yin, you can see what's yang, you can see what's what, basically. Because you're seeing the underlying principle that goes through things. I've seen in others of uh, Zhang Jingyue's writings that he always complains that physicians get lost in the details because they don't have a center to start with. And they start flailing away. Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's do this. Let's do that. And then he says it's all lost. Now, because we're dealing with human beings with free will, our patients. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That, that throws a whole other thing in, doesn't it? Yes. If they're with us on this quest, so to speak, if they're open to entering that place, 
You know, qi is also a communication between practitioner and patient. If they're there with us, something will happen. There will be a ying, a resonance, which will allow the, the patient's body-mind to resonate, go through the necessary self-adjustments and changes, and enter a state where health can return. At least that's how I practice. I don't practice symptomatically. I do use a lot of hufa, harmonization, balancing of channels, and try to let the body mind do its own work rather than impose something. Unless, of course, it's a you know, very acute situation like a child with a high fever, something like that. Then, of course, you have to use a different strategy. There are all military strategies discussed in you know, Sun Tzu's Art of War, et cetera, et cetera. It's different things we can apply, you know. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. This piece that you bring up about the free will and how the patient brings themselves to the encounter. Because... I, I mean, I think that also is a piece of it. You know, the folks that come in and they're like, well, I got this thing and it's your job just to fix me without me participating. I, I think there's only so far we generally speaking can go. I think we can still help people. Often, I think we can not cause but invite some shifts to happen internally. Maybe people's symptoms change, but maybe something else in them shifts. It's like they came in for knee pain, but now they're actually focused on the relationship with their spouse and recognizing something about that. And then there's something about how they're getting along with their kids and how they feel at work. And, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's almost... It's very subversive. It's very, very subversive. <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it will work. So if someone comes in with something like that, generally speaking, I don't, I'm not a fix-it guy at all. No, yeah, I understand. And I'm not into money, what I call medical marketplace stuff. Oh, Groupon sent me blah, blah, insurance, this, that. I have cash, and I'm very selective with which. Of course, I have the luxury of being able to do that. So I tell younger generations of practitioners who have much more pressing financial burdens, at least have part of your practice like that. If you got to do the fix-it thing or the insurance thing, at least have a private part of your practice where you have a really integral relationship with your patients. Maybe you'll see those patients in a different office or in a home office rather than in the clinic. That's a whole other subject of discussion. But occasionally, you know, you'll get people who 
will respond and those who won't. And usually I'll tell people with a symptom, one to three treatments, and let's see what happens. And then I see if they're ready to keep going. But every once in a while, like a woman dragged in her husband a couple of months back. She was seeing a, a student of mine, and he wouldn't see her. And he had some issues also with knees and walking and back and stuff. But as obvious, his real issue was his liver chi, extreme anger, daily drinking of gin and you know other forms of alcohol, red-faced, red-tongued, flooding pulses, and that this guy was a candidate for serious stroke and other illness. And I also saw he didn't want to get treated, and he wasn't hearing what I was saying. So, so I'll just give you this consultation. Here's a few suggestions, and I don't think I can help you very much with this because so-and-so had to let him go. And then I have a, another patient. This is actually a very painful one in a way because it's someone I've seen for 25 years with a serious eating disorder. And she feels that I've helped her stay alive for the last 25 years you know, with herbs, acupuncture. And I have no problem with a plant-based diet. I basically practice it myself. I practice a Japanese diet of you know, soba, rice, vegetables, pickles, fish, that kind of thing. I do eat fish. And some Mediterranean food, of course, being Jewish, Middle Eastern part. But this person has recently reached the age of 60, has stopped assimilating food, seems to be starving herself again, and is a bag of bones. And I have to tell this person, unless you either get force-fed or intravenous, or do something, I can't treat you because the needles may puncture organs at this point. And the chi isn't there for me to, to work with. And that's much more difficult. Someone you've really helped for many years who you can no longer help. And you have to let them go and let them move on. You know. What about the cases where people, they came in for knee pain, but then they stayed for something else? Many people like that mm -hmm. because a rapport and a relationship was established and they realized that they were focusing on one little, talk about fixation, but realized that that's also connected with other things. I remember one time, you know, five years ago, I had a knee injury at my daughter's wedding. I was dancing so enthusiastically and people were supposed to watch me, make sure I didn't get carried away. Of course got I carried got carried away. away. You got carried away. And I tore the ACL in the back of my knee and you know, took some physical therapy, acupuncture, and other things to get. But the first thing I had to do was re-inhabit my changed body in such a way to bring myself back to what I was before as much as possible. I saw, you know, Suzanne Robidoux, from, who lives in Beijing. She was in town. And she said something very profound to me. She said that this is your Xiaoyin. This is your heart, kidney chi. When your knee acts up, it means that you're tired and that your heart... Yang, your heart chi is in a weakened condition. You need to worry less. You need to rest more. Because, you know, one of the things, I guess, with being Jewish is you worry about everything, everybody in the whole world. You know, I'm concerned about the politics going on. I'm concerned about the Amazon and the Arctic. And, you know, because it says in the Nanjing, a doctor f first heals the diseases of civilization, of society. And our society has taken a real turn for the worse lately. And the earth has taken a real turn for the worse. And of course, how can we not see it and not feel it 
and also see how that's affecting the health of our patients, both in a psychological, emotional, and physiological level as well. So, But I took that advice to mind, and I noticed immediately, in fact, it changed my whole perspective just for saying that one thing, because being in my 60s, thank goodness I'm in excellent health, but I know when I'm tired because little symptoms pop up. I start feeling it aching in the kidneys, the knee gets a little wobbly, you know, things just happen. And as soon as I'm rested and feel good again, they all disappear. Yeah. I, I have patients, sometimes they'll come in with something and I find myself reluctant to try to take it away because at least in their situation, I mean, this is, this is just my discernment, but my discernment with them and their situation with what's going on in their life I'm using air quotes here, the problem that they came in with, it's actually the kind of weak link in their body. It's the early warning system. And it'd be like taking the batteries out of a fire alarm. If I shut, if I shut down the thing that's actually asking them to make some more global changes in their life, the downstream effects of that can actually be quite serious in a negative way. Michael Brofman used to say that Putting an acupuncture needle into a, a hole, a point, a shwe, is like you have a still pond and you skip a rock across it. And that one rock will send ripples all the way to the other side of the pond. He said, every time you treat somebody, you have to look at the consequence of that treatment down the line. And we're not used to that kind of thinking in this culture. Everything's here now in the wrong way. Feels good, do it. Relieves pain, do it. But every intervention has a long-term consequence. And the stronger the treatment, the more one-sided the reaction may be. There always is an equal and opposite reaction if you don't play your cards right, if you don't do those balancing strategies, whether it's with herbs, acupuncture, Western medicine, or anything else. And I see sometimes the long-term effects that patients get from biomedical treatments that no one told them about before they did it. Happens all the time. It happens all the time. And I think it's very easy for us to notice that, partly because biomedicine has strong side effects. I think it's easy for us to notice it because we're kind of in competition with those guys, so to speak. So it's like, oh, look what they did. And at the same time, I think it's incumbent upon us to look and see what I'm doing today. Will it be helpful today? Will it be helpful a week from now, will it be helpful five years from now? Earlier in this conversation, we're talking about the warp and the woof and how a jing is, is like the warp. It's something that goes through a structure and it's something that goes through time. And when we think about the jing, the jing law, the channels, meridians, whatever you want to call it, as simply these you know, amazing, wonderful watersheds, well, yes, there's, there's a lot that we can do that can be powerful and helpful. But if we leave out that piece about the, the time-space dimension of the Jing, we might be missing out on how we might not be helping people long-term or how there are some small things we can do now that might be a benefit way down the road. Yes. And I see people make that mistake now with acupuncture. Oh, it's, it can't do any harm, you know. I'm just going to pump it and we're going to get in that, that shoulder. 
it may be what's required in acute injury, but you have to also look at the consequences long-term in terms of weakening the person's vital chi deeper down underneath the particular appendage that you're treating. So there was an article by a physicist in the 80s, Dan knew about this as well, named Hans Agren. And I can send it to you if you like. Mm, yeah, I'd love to see it. You've seen it? No, I haven't seen it. I would yeah. like to see it. There's two types of time he mentions. He says one is synchronous time, which is Wu Yan Liu Qi, you know, the, the harmonization of phenomena in this world with celestial constellation time, solar, lunar, seasonal year cycles according to 12 year cycles in the 12 animals, et cetera, et cetera, earth cycles, where you're trying to synchronize with cosmic time and space. And then there's sequential time, which while the Shanghalin also does have synchronous time in it, right at the beginning, the first chapters, it does lay out a timeline of disease. In other words, so if you had a patient who contracted Shanghan when a cold damage or a Zongfeng wind strike, but you're seeing them three days later, you have to determine, are they still Tai Yang? Or is it a or has drag it transmuted? Over? Yeah, is it a transmuted pattern? Bing, bing. Is it in more than one channel? Or is it already all the way into Xiaoyang? Has the person been sick for so long or have they mistreated that they take laxatives or large doses of vitamin C? Is it in the yin aspect? Is it in the internal viscera? It gives you a way of timelining an illness and also seeing that a disease, if you limit it just to its Western name for a Chinese medicine practitioner, is very limiting because it, when is a cold no longer a cold? Okay, you got rid of the stuffy nose, the sneezing and the scratchy throat, but now you've got a bloated belly, diarrhea, and no appetite. Is that a cure? No. You've just transmuted disease. You've moved it from one place to another. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other aspect. I didn't know we're going to go down this rabbit hole, but let's, let's take a little detour here. The, the whole idea of what an illness is and what we name it, because, I mean, we've got these Western diagnoses. We've got these Western illnesses. And yet, if we think that what we're doing is simply treating that Western illness without looking at the dynamic that's going on brought about by that illness, I mean, the, treating the dynamic, the functional dynamic, I think we're really good at that with Chinese medicine. It's, it's like what we specialize in. But if we simply name it with the Western disease name, and don't pay attention to, to that lead that goes through it, I think we miss out on a whole lot. A lot, yeah. That's again getting back to saying earlier about fixation, this idea of fixable phenomena that can be measured, categorized. And of course, biomedicine is good at that blood test. You have so many cc's of this and IgEs are like that. And there's so many white blood cells on your account after chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. All these things can give you valuable information, but that information still has to be plugged in to the format that we're working in to be useful. And that's what Zhang Chun was all about. So how do you resolve this apparent conundrum between there's a process going on and we're looking to work the mechanism, so to speak, versus 
medicine makes a promise. The promise of medicine is you've got an X, we're going to help you get rid of X. Of course, the theory of what is a cure in biomedicine is sometimes a little bit tricky and iffy. It's more fuzzy than people think. Is a cure means you don't have symptoms or the example I just gave. Okay, you're not blowing your nose and don't have a scratchy throat, but now you have diarrhea and bloating. Is that a cure? Or if you actually just move the focus of the illness inside. And in Shang Han Lun, cold vacuity in the internal yin viscera is considered much worse than an external yang invasion, quote unquote. But you don't notice it because the symptoms aren't providing as much discomfort. You're willing to live with, okay, uh, yeah, I lost my appetite. I feel fatigued. My lower limbs are a little swollen and you know I've got sloshing sounds in my belly. A lot of people aren't even aware of those symptoms. They're like under the radar for most modern people. I would agree. Uh, the ability for people to be attentive to what their digestion is doing or not doing is surprisingly poor by and large. Yeah, what people think is normal in this culture Someone posted on Facebook uh, last week a picture of just people at the beach on the boardwalk in the 1970s. And everybody was pretty relatively trim and fit looking. Well, we were younger. Well, no, I'm, I'm not you and I. Just people of all ages in this picture, just like Coney Island in the 70s. And then they took a picture of Coney Island in the 2010s and the amount of pot bellies, obesity, and loss of just a sense of integrity of the body is extreme because of the degeneration of the food quality, largely. So that means there's a real lack of awareness of what one's body's doing. I, most men I see in my age group, 50s, 60s, have pot bellies. It's not normal. That means your internal viscera are blown out. They're literally externalizing to your body. It's not a healthy thing. Not a, not not so good. Potai, notwithstanding. Potai, you remember the, the little Buddha with the pot belly? Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I want to come back to your book for a moment. Nanjing is is a big old book. You've pulled out selections from it. What guided you in pulling out the portions that you wanted to explore? It came to me because you know I teaching in a TCM school for many years, one of the weak links seemed to be diagnosis first and foremost. People didn't know how to diagnose properly, but especially they didn't know how to do vessel or pulse diagnosis correctly. So I started looking for texts. You know, I looked at Li Shijian, um, I looked in the Ling Su, I looked in the Su Wen, I looked in different places, more modern books, more ancient books, some of the English language books that have come out. But the best explanation I found was the first 22, 23 chapters of the Nanjing. It was laid out systematically. It begins by telling you, why do we use Sun Guan Chur? Why do we use the tripartite division at the wrist starting at lung nine? And then it explains why. And the vessels circling so many times in the body explains to you the circulation of ying qi and wei qi and it's 
body breaths and actual respiratory breaths, the connection with that, Wei Qi, defense Qi at the outside, 25 circulations during the day, internal to the body in the yin aspect, 25 times at nighttime, and how that connects and how that reflects into the pulse, into the position. And it was just, this is genius. You know, and based on the water clock, the clidipsia, and then it goes into how it divides it, upper, middle, lower, the regions of the body, when yang violates yin or when yin violates yang, right? When yang is at the surface normally, but now yang is at the root, or when yin comes up and is yin at the top instead of at the bottom, it's similar to what you were studying at the Sa'an, you know, this, the proper location of yin and yang and their interrelationships. So it starts with yin-yang relationships in the pulse. Then it goes into five-phase relationships on the pulse and what that means finally in terms of your therapeutics in terms of acupuncture and working with those replete and vacuous channels that we're talking about. And in between, it discusses the Chiching Ba Mai, the eight extraordinary vessels. It discusses... Um, what we call severance of the vessels, where the pulse doesn't communicate anymore with the jing of the kidneys. How can you tell when... Okay, so I'm curious to know, first of all, how, how you can tell when something's been severed. But, but beyond that, pulse diagnosis is such a subjective experience. It's such a kind of internal tuning and I'm I'm curious for those of us that don't feel like we have a a good handle on the pulse, so to speak. How to develop that internal subjective sense to be able to differentiate this from that, and to be able to make sense of, of what we're actually feeling? Because it it seems to me it's often so easy to put your hand on something and go, well, they're angry, so yeah, I'm going to call that a wiry pulse. Well, it's the same as in studying meditation. I know you're a practitioner of Zen, and I'm not no expert on Zen Buddhism, but let's just put it this way. You know, the tricks and trials of, of a so-called enlightenment state, where you fool yourself into thinking you're enlightened as opposed to actually being in a certain place in your consciousness. Well, I think you already are an adept in Pulse, Michael, and uh, you just don't know it yet. But the way, <laughs> so, are you saying like the Zen folks who say basically when you're sitting zazen, you're in an enlightened state because you're sitting zazen? Yes, it's something like that. So when you're reading the pulse, if your communication is good, if you're in that yi shin in that one mind state, you're going to get the information that is essential to get for that patient at that time. I really strongly believe that, and what we're using the Nanjing for, and other texts as well. And I put some nice charts in this book to help people do it because I'm a very visual person, is you have a map that helps you navigate the territory and give some impressions, words, constructs to what it is you're feeling based on the experience of 2,000 years of physicians. One of the source books I used for this text goes back even further, which are like the Pulse Journals of Bianchue, who, of course, was a big influence on the Nanjing. And, uh, and that, he, Bianchue is like a mythic character. Right. It, I forgot the name. I, I've had this book for years. I've read it multiple times. I'm forgetting. But it was Elizabeth Shu translated this book, this work. Who was the famous physician 
who went to see this Lord and he told him that your disease is at this level. If you don't change now, you're going to die here. Remember that? I, I remember this story. I don't know who the doctor was. Here it is. Pulse Diagnosis Early Chinese Medicine is the name of the book. Chen Yu Yi. That's it. Yeah. Early, in recorded in the historical records by Sima Qian. That's what I was looking for. And it's called Pulse Diagnosis Early Chinese Medicine, The Telling Touch. And I really love this book. It's not an easy read, but it's a great book. But Bian Chui, of course, was a major influence on the Nanjing, right? And sometimes it's considered the, the, the mythological author of the Nanjing. That's why I mixed it up. Okay. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. What's one of the things that you really like about this book? What is it that you feel that you distilled out of your experience of reading through at the times that you have? You're talking about my own book here? No, no, I'm talking about this one that you just mentioned that Elizabeth uh, Shue? Elizabeth Shue's book. In that everything is based on the pulse and nothing else. They're very similar in a book from a different era, The Case Histories of Yetianza. He gives you just a few symptoms, pulse like this, here's the formula. It's a very direct, intuitive, distilled view of medicine. And a new translation just came out of it from the Chinese medicine database. And what's nice about this translation is that it has case histories, and but it also has commentary by other physicians, like Xu Dashun, who takes issue with the Yetianzu's approach and says, that's a dangerous formula to give with that ingredient in such a large dosage. I would reduce it down to one third of the dose. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Here we go with the commentary across yeah. uh, centuries, right? I love it. I just love it. <laughs> so this book uh, has less than the way, but it's just so direct, and that's what I'm always aiming for. I have a you know. Do you know Ken Rose? He wrote "Who Will Ride the Dragon" with. I then. do not know him personally, but I have heard of him. He's a dear friend of mine. He's a real brilliant guy. He's a real qigong expert. And he wrote another book called The Secret History of Qi, right? Based on the title of one of Stephen Hawking's books. And he said to me when I started writing this project, which is basically 10, 15 years ago, but I wasn't ready yet to put it to print, make it as simple as possible, distilled as possible. And every time I'd write, I'd have to contract it, bring it down, 
And I have a great editor, Daniel Schreier, who you may have met, and he really helped me in this process as well. And he served as a mirror for me in writing this book. But it's really echoing what Einstein said. Make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. But no simpler, yeah. And finding the difference between simplicity and oversimplification. They're mm -hmm. two different things. Yes. So we have so many wordy books and things that with run-on sentences and long-winded ideas. And sometimes they can be inspiring a lot of fun. But for me, at least, the best reading are simple, concise manuals. That's why the Tao Te Ching is so popular. Mm -hmm. That's as concise as you can get. Pretty much, yeah. So, yeah, right? really terse, but... Yeah. Um, Condensed. So that's what knowledge. I tried to do with my own book. And that's what I liked about that book I just mentioned of Elizabeth Shue. Okay. Well, I want to come back to this idea that the information is in the pulse, that we as practitioners, if we have a, a bit of cultivation, if we have kind of a sense of our pole star, so to speak, you know, we've got a way of, of keeping ourselves present in in the relationship and in the room, you know, I, I think especially, I think all of us, especially starting out, you know, we're sitting with a patient and we're wondering, oh my God, I have got no idea what to do with this person, right? I mean, it's easy to lose our center. It's easy to feel overwhelmed. Oh my God, there's a theory. I'm going to try this theory. I mean, whatever, right? We, we grasp at straws. I don't think it's possible to feel a pulse in that state and get very much information. But what, if I'm hearing you correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that if we can be in a certain kind of receptive state, subjectively, there will be information that comes in that's helpful. I'd like to know a little more about cultivating that state. Because I know for myself, like in school, and we're learning to read pulses, feel this, feel that, da 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 that's all very mechanical, super objective in a way, but I think what you're talking about is something different. So how can we go about building that aspect of ourselves so that we can bring it to, to use in our clinics? The Jing, the classics provide a number of maps and we all resonate with different traditions and try on different hats, so to speak. But if like say one's going to go hiking in the in the high Sierras, in the Sierra Nevada, and you decide to go to a ranger station on the way in. You could pick up a topographic map, hydrological map, road map. You have all these different maps, and some of them will be superimposed on each other. Each case provides you with an opportunity to choose the map that is most specific to what it is that you're treating. And this is something, of course, that comes with time and experience. But one has to start with, we need teachers who will give people confidence in the pulse. I remember years ago when I was teaching at a TCM school, there was one teacher who said, it's all subjective, you can't trust it, don't use that as, as a base of diagnosis. Total antithesis of what I was trying to teach. And if you undermine the student at an early stage, they'll never get it. I started feeling pulses before I even went to an acupuncture school. I was a shiatsu therapist and macrobiotic counselor in the 70s. And when I told the people I was working, I said, I'm not going to diagnose from this, but please give me the privilege of feeling your pulses just so I can learn. And I would feel pulses in bus stations. I go down where the homeless were in the Santa Fe bus station, look at their tongues, feel their pulses, family members, everywhere I went, traveling, feel my own pulses. 
with my wife, Michael Brofman, once said, feel her pulse in the morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, evening, and watch how it changes. Get that sense of the circadian rhythm clocks that are in the pulse. So you just keep gathering more information and you store it and it just grows and grows. And it's like a musician, you know? You get dexterity of your instrument. Before you know it, you're improvising, you know? It's the same, it is music. Who was it? It was uh, Gelen in Western medicine said that you need to be a musician to feel the pulse. I don't mean, I don't think he means literally that you have to play an instrument, although it definitely helps, but you have to have a, a musical sense, the harmonies that different visceral systems resonate at different tones. And of course, we know this in Taoist healing where you use different tones to heal visceral systems. And Li Dong Yuan said the difference between Sun and Guan is a thousand Li. So what does that mean? He means that there's a, as I read it, there's a tremendous amount of detail under each figure in each position. You can read all kinds of stuff. I'll give you one example, which was just amazing. There was a woman who came to see me. She had just moved from Los Angeles to San Diego, got a nice house near the water. And so I should be very happy. You know, I have a beautiful home, a great marriage, but I'm very down. I'm very depressed and I don't have my normal energy. And I don't have any physical symptoms I can think of, but, you know, can you help me out? So I felt her pulses. And on the left position, it felt like a ball of rubber bands. And I said to her, there's something going on with your left kidney. I want you to get a scan and get it checked out and see what's going on. Well, it turned out she had a cancerous tumor on that kidney and she had to have the kidney removed. And after the kidney was removed, her mood came back and she was fine. That's what was doing it. I mean, that doesn't happen every day. But you can get to that point where you know what's jun, what's correct, and what's xie, what's evil, and you can even pick out physical pathologies. I wouldn't rely on my judgment every single day with something like that. Although I saw a Tibetan physician, Lobsang Rapke, at UCSD, University of San Diego, University of California, San Diego branch, and it was sponsored by the medical school. And they had this physician, they brought out 18 patients, cancer patients from the oncology department. He read all 18 people's pulses. He told each patient without knowing what their condition was, the type of cancer that they had and their prognosis. And there was one patient, he looked at the audience, looked at the patient said, you don't have cancer. That was like the control patient. You can get to those levels, even of physical disease. I saw it with my own eyes. The Tibetans, for some reason, seem to do it better than the average Chinese medical practitioner these days, but so. It's in there. Well, I, you know, again, I feel like I am a very rudimentary pulsologist. I wouldn't even call myself a pulsologist. It pulses one of those, uh, it truly is one of those mysteries that I feel like I at times struggle with uh, as I am a student of it. We all are students. Well, of course, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the fun part of the job. But, but one of the things that I've noticed with the pulse, and this is lately, is often I'll feel a pulse and I'll go, you know what, I, there's nothing in here that really catches my attention. And I, and I, and I, and I just kind of leave it alone. It's like, that, eh, eh, unremarkable. What's that pulse? Unremarkable. Other pulses, I'll put my fingers on there and, and it's like, 
well, that's interesting. That that knotted up chi that you were talking about in that woman's uh, left kidney pulse, right? Sometimes I'll feel something like that. There'll be one position and it's like, holy smokes, there's something here and there's not much anywhere else. And that stuff is pretty obvious at this point. Now, I don't always know what to do with it. Often, I don't know what to do with it. I'll feel something or I'll feel a pulse and it feels like somebody was ringing a bell. There's like a, there's like a ringing sound that's, that's in there. Yeah, that's very interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got pulses. I've got names for them. I can feel them, but I've yet to figure out what they actually are about. I just, I just know that something is not right. Yes. Now, there are pulses that are described as being like very serious disease. And I'm just, there are like um, 10 of them. And I have a chart for them and a discussion on each one. And I translated these sections out for the book. And one of them is called like a spinning bean, like a dough. Another is like a shifting rug, which I describe as like you feel rather than one flow in the vessel, you feel multiple streams wrapping around each other like little snakes around each other. And that usually means what I call a humoral imbalance where the jing, the blood, and the fluids are not flowing together. Or you literally can feel where the channel speeds are off. Like the yin and yang basically are not keeping up with each other. And that's a sign of serious illness. And so these so different it's almost flows, like you've got two rhythms going at the same time. Exactly. I'm sure you felt that. I, I have, yeah. yeah. I find it confusing. I mean, I, I, I'll feel that kind of thing, and then I'm trying to make sense of it, but it, it's like there's no sense to be made. I just, get, I just walk away going, something's up. I can't quite get what this is other than there's a disorderedness to it. Yes. Here it is. The Shu Guai Mai, they're called, the 10 Strange Vessel Movements. You probably already have this, but you know it talks about the leaking roof pulse. And I have a direct experience with the leaking roof pulse, which basically means death of spleen chi. This is a very sad case. This is, uh, I felt it twice, both on cancer patients in their last days. So one was a woman with breast cancer, and she was just given a knockout punch. They raised her chemo, you know, this heroic medicine. Let's, let's raise it one third. And she just got wiped. The next time I felt her pulse, the spleen pulse, literally felt like the bottom had fallen out and that there was leaking, that the vitality was leaking down and out of the vessel. So not just a sinking pulse, but a leaking pulse. Yes. This is called the Wulomai, the leaking roof pulse. And she died within a few weeks. Her liver swelled up and she died. I also felt the same thing on a young girl who was 16 with liver cancer in her last week. And this was like 35 years ago when I was still doing house calls. But the other interesting thing, she had a tongue that was like raw meat with white flakes on it. So the spleen she had scattered. I remember there was a guy who used to raise horses with Chinese medicine here in California, forgetting his name, but he put out a pictures of death tongues. And this was one of the death tongues. So these, these pulses are very valuable. Some of these were taken from the uh, Maijing. 
So not directly from the Nanjing, but I put that in as a uh, appendix in the book and describe when you would see them and what they mean. They're definitely indicative of serious illness. And I, lo- I also love the natural metaphors. Another thing that makes it difficult to learn pulses is that the Chinese, of course, lived in close intimacy with nature, more than proximity. They were in it and of it and by it. And today we have, as we would say, many degrees of separation. Right. I mean, I mean, to the point where we take our organic organism that we live in and we imagine our brain is a computer and we imagine our heart is a pump and we imagine that our energy is like a machine of some sort. Exactly. And this makes it difficult to understand these metaphors. So, for example, the, there's a pulse called the uh, untwining rope, Jesuomai. And the untwining rope is described in the Mai Jing. Um, here I'm referring back to a, a Bob Flaw's translation. It needs to be translated. If I had the time, I would try to attempt it myself with someone who's better with Chinese. Get a hold of Leo. Leo can help you with that. Oh, Leo is great. Leo is a busy man himself. A tethered horse running to and fro by a stream. Now, someone will say, what the heck is that? But I think you and I could see that. You have a horse that's trotting by a stream. You have it tethered to a rope, but it's a real testy horse, and it goes one way and it goes the other. It's trying to get out, and there's a stream flowing by it. And if you feel it in the pulse, you could feel like a movement that's coming in and out of the pulse in a chaotic manner, moving side to side. And that's indicative of what I consider to be humoral imbalances, visceral imbalances in the body. And I feel it quite often. I see it quite often in modern Americans because we live in times of such great hormonal and physiological chaos. That image really lands for me. I'm curious to see how that shows up for me in clinic here in the next few days. I suspect it will. Okay, well, hopefully this book will be of good use to you as well, and I'd love to get your feedback on it. it... Well, I've got one more question before we wind this down, and that is how can somebody make the best use of this book? As a mirror, as a map, and as an occasional reference, someplace to dip into and consult, and then go back to whatever it is they were doing. And also, and I I got Paul's input on this as well, as a clinical commentary on the first part of the Nanjing that he translated. He's got lots of commentaries, historical ones, so I'm just humbly, hopefully, adding a small one from myself, from, from my years of practice. I figure I've been around it long enough where my perspective could be useful to some people. The funny thing about Chinese medicine is it really seems to take decades to consolidate some kind of a perspective that gives us some kind of stability in clinic, and then hopefully we can articulate it in some way to, to pass it along to the next generation. It seems to me, even though we've, Chinese medicine has been around for a long, long time, it's only as alive as it flourishes in this generation. Yes, but at the root of it all, and our fallback position, even for the new young practitioner, is compassion. If you really care about people, 
you will learn what it is to take care of them, and you have to really care about them. We say about Maimonides, the great Jewish physician and rabbi, he used to stay up all night before giving a purgative to a patient. So it kind of be like us saying, well, should I really give da cheng chi tang to that patient <laughs> I was thinking about tomorrow? What if I damage their spleen chi, right? It's the same type of thing. And the compassion, the caring has carried me all the way across. And I can't say I'm always in that space. I'm only, you know, we're all human. We have our good days, not so good days. There are other things that are grabbing our attention in our lives. But I always seem to get good results. Of course, I had my failures, and but usually those failures were the result of me not having the ying, the resonance, the connection of the person I should have. They should have been with somebody else, you know. And I'm very sensitive to that now. If I don't feel I have that resonance, I will ship them out or in the nicest way possible. Yeah. I would say if there's anything I've learned over the past few years, it is recognizing earlier than later that, oh, this isn't going to be a good fit. I, I think I know where you might get better help than here. And it's, I love it, it's to, not a judgment, good or bad. It's just I, not going to work here. I loved what you said in a recent podcast. I think it was the one you, did you do it? Was it one with Chip Chase, May He Rest in Peace? Or another one where you said that we're different, that we want to get our patients out and on the way and better, right? <laughs> it's so different than the come five times a week for the next two years mentality. Yeah, that we're going to put you on a maintenance program for the rest of your life. Right, Yeah, kind of thing. You know, because integrity in practice, I haven't listened to Lonnie's uh, podcast yet, but I'm sure he talked about it, which is that, you know, integral medicine and integrity, when you have a good relationship with people based on honesty, openness, and forthrightness, when they're done, they're done. Mm -hmm. And they will refer you to other people if they maintain that integrity with you. Or they will come back when they need you. I've had people come back after 10, 20 years. I need you for this now. Yeah, yeah, I've had that too. It's Someone fantastic, will show up five it? years down the road. Well, you know, that knee thing, uh, yeah, not a problem. But now I got this thing with hot flashes, so. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right, my dear friend, this has been wonderful. and uh, Always a delight. Thank you so much for your work and, and for sharing this with us. And um, I hope we can share tea in, in proximal space-time at some point soon. I, I would like that. I would like that. I might, I might be getting down to the uh, southern part of California here in the near future, and I will be sure to ping you if that happens. Okay, please do. All right. Take care. Be well. Live long and prosper. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.